Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. So, welcome to the Facade Tectonics Institute podcast. Today, we are talking with Chris Sharples of Shop Architects. And Chris, if you can just give us a little introduction of yourself, what you do. Hello, Namali. Uh, I'm Chris Sharpless, uh, one of the founding principals of Shop Architects. We're a global practice based here in downtown New York City, about 150 people on staff, and we work across many different building typologies. We actually cut our teeth first in, in public works projects, doing a number of waterfront parks here in New York City and, and Long Island, but we've moved on to doing, you know, high-rise buildings, arenas, headquarters for major tech companies. Um, and we're also working with the U.S. State Department's overseas building operations and working on five new embassies for, for our uh, U.S. government. So we, we're sort of a very diverse practice, but I, I think the other thing I would say is that we, we uh, leverage technology quite a bit. Ever since we were founded back in 96, uh, technology has played a big role in not only how we design, but how we are able to have a much more intimate relationship with people who actually fabricate and build our buildings. So that's something that that has played a huge role in in our design thinking and our approaches to how we we, uh, look at the built environment. Thank you. And so in terms of design thinking and your approach to the built environment, your participation in Design for Freedom and how you work. Can you tell us how that kind of goes together and what Design for Freedom actually is and, and why you chose to participate, how it may or may not influence your day-to-day work? Probably a majority, a lot of us in AEC, architecture, engineering, construction, I also say would also add ownership, are not aware of how much forced labor there is in the building material supply chain. You know, we're aware to a certain degree of certain poor labor practices that are utilized in, in parts of the world. Uh, United States in general has a good record when it comes to on-site, but the areas where we really see the impact of forced labor is in the actual sourcing and fabrication of material systems for our buildings. And so it was actually, I don't know, about four years ago, SHOP was invited by uh, Sharon Prince, who's the CEO of Grace Florence Foundation, and William Mencken, who was the uh, founder of Architects Newspaper, to uh, join a team of people looking at how we could begin to address this challenge of forced labor in the material supply chain within our fields that include, you know, architecture, engineering, construction, and ownership. So it's a, it's a really diverse group uh, of, of people all working together to really begin to tackle and, in a way, just make more transparent uh, what's going on in, in our space when it comes to forced labor. Thank you. And what evidence is there of the forced labor? Like, how are we able to actually see it, see that forced labor is impacting the materials that we choose and 
and the sourcing of materials, like what's there and what is the impact on the laborer who actually creates the products for us that come to market in I shouldn't say come to market, but comes to the site in the end for the for the end product. Well, we we seen the challenges or the the evidence of forced labor in other sort of uh, production models. I think fashion, the fashion industry is one that comes to mind quite readily. You've also you know chocolate, but you know when you start coming to the issue of building materials, the supply chain is incredibly opaque. Uh, most architects, builders might be, be able to track, you know, systems to, you know, tier one, tier two, possibly tier three sub suppliers. But when you start talking about, you know, resourcing raw materials, there really is no direct connection or understanding from the design and construction industry how those materials are actually being sourced. Uh, So what's going on right now to sort of make more transparent is that there are organizations out there that are are developing tools that provide statistical analysis that sort of is based on risk assessments. So examples of that would be fair supply out of Australia or FRDM Freedom uh, out of uh, San Francisco. In other industries like like cotton, there's a company called Oratane that also does risk assessments on labor abuses. But again, a lot of this is statistical analysis. It's very hard at this point to actually have people on the ground who are actually seeing this activity going on in in certain places. But the first step is just creating a sense of awareness and understanding where are the sectors where we're seeing the most risk happen. And it's quite surprising. I mean, for example, with with timber, close to 80% of the timber that's sourced globally is is either sourced illegally or using forced uh, labor. So it's a a very surprising thing when you hear something like that. Uh, Obviously, when it comes to other types of materials, steel, uh, materials for for making steel or, or, you you know, materials like lithium, you you hear stories, you, you see films, and it just shows, you know, the challenges of really trying to track some of these, you know, these raw materials sourced in very uh, remote locations. So the first thing is using these statistical tools to start just creating a sense of transparency. And as you mentioned, countries such such as Australia, France, the UK, the US, specifically California, have policies in place to mitigate forced labor on job sites and the use of forced labor in material production. What do you think has gone well with these policies slash initiatives and what do you think requires improvement? Additionally, do you think as a collective design community, we can push all countries to implement these policies over time? Well, I, I think, you know, what Australia is doing, they're sort of, I, I would like to say they're setting the gold standard. I think the Anti-Slavery Act of 2018 that was drafted by Kimberly Randall is is an important start because it holds companies somewhat accountable to um taking a, a, a stand in terms of understanding if there are labor abuses within their, their supply chain that they're using to produce their materials. And it's based on every $1 million 
what is the percent of forced labor to produce a particular product or particular building material. So um, the other thing that you're starting to see is that a lot of companies are becoming very mission driven when it comes to ESG programs. Uh, environmental, social, and governance programs. And so this hand-in-hand with these statistical, these analytical tools allow people to become much more engaged. Uh, The next step is really uh, once you understand that there's a high risk of forced labor in a certain component of your supply chain, what do you do? And this is where it gets a bit more challenging because obviously some people say, well, I'll just change supplier, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. And so, and it's, it's not just, you, you can't sort of just isolate this and just saying, okay, I'm going to just address the issue of reducing or removing this, this abuse. It also has to do with changing behavior in the way that we work and design and execute on buildings. What you're seeing right now is that there's there's a huge amount of inflation because the supply chain is not very resilient. You know, a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal and the whole world falls apart, or we have a pandemic uh, and in certain parts, or in this case, in the Ukraine, uh, the impacts on of that war on the global supply chain are already being felt, whether it's with building materials or food food supply. And then there's climate on top of this. So it's not just, we're not going to solve this by just looking for areas where we see it and then trying to go in there and attack it. We also have to change the way that we do business. In our industry, because, and then, There's been a lot of analysis has come out over the past five, six years. McKinsey's report from 2017 was sort of the beginning where people started to understand how much the AEC industry needed to innovate in order to become much more productive and and take advantage of some of the the, the approaches in advanced manufacturing. So the thing is, is without those changes, Uh, owners, builders are going to continue to look for cheaper forms of sourcing. And the lowest common denominator is labor. If the building costs are going up, you look for cheaper labor. And, And that's where the abuses start to happen. So we have to change the way that we think about the whole design build ecosystem. And that requires us to take on, take advantage of some of the new technologies that's being developed and looking outside of our industry to advance manufacturing to really begin to modernize the way that we, we not only design and build, but also communicate with our fabricators. So if we take it a step back from before it gets to the, the labor part and sourcing cheap labor and look at the tools that we have, such as BIM, since pretty much every firm now globally is starting to use this tool to make our designs much more efficient, but also ideally contribute to the, the sourcing um, supply chain issue. Specific to your contribution in terms of use, shop, and the design for freedom outline, Can you speak to how utilizing the BIM process in a more holistic way, such as digital twins, vertical integrated delivery, can assist in eradicating or at least minimizing forced labor in the construction and design process? You know, the the key to really 
attacking this problem is it's all about building relationships with your suppliers. And through building these relationships, you build trust. Because it's, it's, it, the way our industry operates right now, it's very siloed and very adversarial. When people run into problems that aren't within their scope, they tend to throw it over the fence and say, that's not my problem, that's your problem. In order to really attack this issue of forced labor in the material supply chain, we all have to collaborate and work together. The way the tools are set up right now, it's very hard to do that. Um, you know, the, the designers, the engineers work with certain software platforms uh, and then, you know, the, the, the project gets handed over to the builder and then the builder either utilizes the model or remakes the model or some of the fabricators can't even communicate with some of the information. So everybody is sort of working with their own languages. Uh, the, there is a degree of interoperability and there is some modernization that's happening in different areas, whether it's within the design office or, or in the field with robotics and automation on the construction site. But what we really need to do is we need to adapt or adopt certain processes that are really been utilized for decades in other industries, specifically advanced manufacturing. When you look at aerospace or automotive, those production lines are geared towards, you know, a digital platform that is a single source of product data. Everything you need to manufacture, let's say an aircraft or a car, is captured in one model. And information from that model is parsed out to the different fabricators within the supply chain. But the thing is, it's a holistic process. Everybody understands at the end of the day all the components that you need to do that particular product, whether it's an airplane or a car. Now, the key thing when it comes to design, when you're working in that kind of space, when you design something, you're also thinking about how it gets made. Now, in AEC, architects aren't really supposed to be involved in means and methods. And and so it makes that transition, translation between the act of design and the act of building very disconnected. And as a result, it also creates an adversarial relationship between the design engineers and the builders. So the key is to really create that shared experience through the single source of product data, that digital model, the digital twin. What's another exciting thing about these types of models is that they're all based on developing material attributes. So when you click on a certain component, it actually tells you the attributes, the characteristics of that material. So if it's a 316 piece of sheet steel and you fold it, what it gives you the radius curve on that element. What's interesting is you could program every material. You can put inputs into every material that tell you not only what its material characteristics are or its shape or how it gets connected to another material, but you can also begin to put in data that tells where that material is being sourced from, who's fabricating it, and suddenly your model becomes a library, an archive of very intimate intelligence. Now, in order to get it that way, 
you need to start building up relationships with your supply chain. You need to be able to talk to them. You need to be able to have a conversation. How do you make things? Who do you source things from? And and so it requires uh, a certain level of intimacy. But the thing is, the model allows for that conversation because everybody can sort of get around it. It's all a shared uh, experience. And the other thing is, when you're designing something, you start to think about how it gets made, just as an industrial designer would automatically do, you start asking questions of your fabricators. Well, how do you set up your shop? How do you like to work these materials? And you get feedback. And what's important about that is it sets up a relationship that is incredibly empathetic. Like you're you're also thinking about, well, what what are the challenges that your fabricators are, are facing? And they are starting to understand also what are the, what are the uh, goals, the desires that you're trying to achieve? And, and so it's, it's a working relationship. And sometimes we're solving each other's problems. Now, what becomes really exciting about this is that we're also a byproduct of this is feedback. And this goes into the whole question of how we go about managing risk collectively. And this is this is a value that I think is is really missing right now in, in our sort of AEC ecosystem is how we can manage risk collectively. And so at the end of the day, that single source of product data, that digital twin is the foundation for how we can really understand in a very transparent way, in a very holistic way, all the different components and all the different processes that are required in order to, in, the, in our case, to build a building. So, so building on what you're saying about the byproduct of this digital twin and the fact that we can have a much more productive relationship with, with our suppliers, do you think one of do you think another byproduct of this digital twin and a more productive relationship, aside from managing risk, would be that the, the information provided by the model can help us have more carbon neutral or, re, or reduce carbon footprints of, of the facilities and the, and the buildings that we build? No, absolutely. I mean, because that's, that's just, that's another input. You know, what is the, uh, what is the embodied carbon you know, in the production, in the sourcing, you know, the the raw material output, the fabrication, and the final install, that data can be placed directly into the model. And uh, and what's what's important about that is this is not a frozen document. It's not you know we're moving f- away from representational uh, information. You know, two D drawings. Uh, sections to instructional documentation where you can actually fabricate directly from from the model. So like I was saying, in terms of uh, material attribute inputs, you can also put in, you know, what is the amount of carbon that's that's produced as a result of the production of the material? What is the the amount of forced labor that might be involved in the production of a certain material. And through that process, you can begin through feedbacks, you can begin to analyze. So you start to target, okay, we need to work on this. We need to improve the performance on this. And so the idea is that 
traditionally when you do a building, it's a one-off operation and you start the next project and you almost have to reinvent the wheel because you got to put a whole new team together and everybody has to learn how we all work together. But what's great about these models is you can take data streams, data intelligence from the prior project and feed it into the next project. And that's called the that process is referred to sort of as the digital triplicate. And I'll give you an example of what that is. It's like if you Rolls-Royce produces engines for Airbus and and so when there's a Rolls-Royce engine on a A380 flying through the space, um, it's sending signals back to Rolls-Royce that tell Rolls-Royce how that engine's performing. So whether that engine's up in the air or on the ground, if it's turned off, it's always getting signal data that goes back to the digital twin. And through that process, they're able to measure performance and look for ways they can improve on that engine. So when they go to the next generation of, of engine production, they're actually taking live data from thousands, tens of thousands of engines. And so so that's what we should be doing with our built environment. We should be taking performance data from how our buildings are behaving, pulling it back into the digital twin. So when we do our next project, we're able to improve on the performance. So the idea is that, you know, traditionally when you do a building and it's a substantial completion, it starts this sort of state of decay. Here we're talking about buildings that can actually get better with time. So there's this idea of upgradability. And in a way, we we think this could be, you know, in terms of our industry, this could be a, an incredible way to look at how we really begin to address the issue of the environmental effects of the building industry on climate change. This is good. I feel like this this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg, right? This is just like the initial information. And now what do we do next? How do we come together collectively? And unfortunately, we're already at the closing. So my final question for you is how does Design for Freedoms foresee architects, developers, contractors, fabricators, suppliers, lawyers, et cetera, working together to eliminate forced labor? And is this idea feasible within the next 10 years? I mean, to me, 10 years seems a very long time, but it's actually quite short. So what are your thoughts on that? It, it is quite short when you consider that on average, it takes about five years to do a mid to high rise building. But we, I do believe with, you know, the advances in, 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 in technology that we can start to build a much more collaborative, you know, ecosystem when it comes to AEC. And I, what we're seeing right now is ownership is, sees the mission. We also see it with the customers, people if they're made aware of, of what's going on with, with labor, they tend to want to not have forced labor in, in their buildings and their products. So there's a desire. The question is, how do we go about, you know, changing things? And it's, it's going to not only it's not only going to come from within our sort of uh, building ecosystem, it also has to come from the government level where, you know, I think OBO, the State Department is very much interested in how to tackle this. And it's also at the sovereign, at the national level, we also have to work closely with other countries, governments, in order to really look at how we can begin to eradicate this really um, 
deplorable activity. So it's going to take many hands light work. But the first thing we have to do is we have to make it more transparent. And through this transparency, people begin to get educated and begin to engage in the process. We need people on the ground. I do believe one of the areas that's going to help accelerate this is the adoption of bio-based materials. Mass timber is a perfect example of this, but looking at you know these other materials, bio-waste as another source, creating what we call the circular supply chain, where you start to have an intimate uh, relationship directly with the source. And I would just end on this. There's a great article in the New Yorker this week on the tallest mass timber building in Norway. That whole building was sourced locally. Now, I'm not saying that's the solution, but that's a good example of how a building was put together working directly with not only the people who fabricated the mass timber, but the people who actually sourced the lumber. And, and so that it's that kind of level of intimacy that we need in order to really begin to tackle this, this problem of forced labor in the material supply chain. Thank you. No, this was really good. And I know, you know, it's a short podcast, but I think that this gives our listening audience a starting point of where to look and what to go toward so that we as a whole collective industry can begin to tackle this problem and look at it transparently so that we can address it as opposed to hiding it in the background. So Chris, thank you very much for being here today. And for our listening audience, you can check out Grace Farm slash Design for Freedom website. You can go to Shop's website and check out what they're doing. And we very much thank you for listening today. And uh, thanks again, Chris, and take care, everyone. Thank you.